Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley and you're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Before we go any further, you should know that this episode is brought to you by Brexit. No, seriously, it is, because in a, well, it's not really, but in a way it is, because recently I did an episode talking all about Brexit and its impact on Ireland with Tom Daly of the American Biography Podcast. If you'd like to find that episode, if you'd like to hear what I think about Brexit and all of its glories, then check that out. It's super easy to do so. All you have to do is search Agora Podcast Network in wherever you get your podcasts from, or if you don't like searching for things, just click on the link in the description below. The Agora Podcast Network is, of course, the podcast network that I am part of, and I should mention it more often, but I don't because I'm, well, liable to forget these things. The Agora Podcast Network is full of other podcasts, just like When Diplomacy Fails, that deal with history, politics, all sorts of stuff, so you should check them out. We're a great bunch of folks. 
and I should emphasise that I really, really enjoyed meeting with all of them last November in Harvard. With all that out of the way though, guys, and with that little advertisement done, I'd just like to say, welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 48. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 48 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So last time, we saw the big three be reunited for the first time in a month, and immediately set about returning to where they had left off. But a great deal had changed from before. Much of the old optimism and imagination seemed to be absent, though this did not represent a downward trend in the Allied relationships, Quite the opposite, in fact. Almost in recognition of the fact that so much had changed, the decision of the Allied leaders to cleave even closer together was made. But not all at once on the 20th of March. It was then that the first proper Council of Four meeting took place between the leaders Vittorio Orlando, Woodrow Wilson, George Clemenceau and David Lloyd George. In this episode, I'm going to examine the context of this development, what it meant for the peace treaty and what it meant for the Allied powers themselves, as they entered into the next chapter of the Paris Peace Conference. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to a familiar friend of ours, Edward House, and his vibrant diary, which will serve to introduce us to the eventful few days of the 16th to the 20th of March, 1919. Take it away, Mr. Edward House. On the 16th of March, House went into some detail about the reparations issue, assisted in this matter by Norman Davis, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury in Wilson's administration and a future Undersecretary of State. House recorded his conversations with Norman Davis and with Lord Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, who was in regular contact with him about the reparations question. Conveniently for House, 
House comes across as a man of great foresight, and Balfour as swayed by his arguments, which were wholly sensible. House wrote, I called upon Mr. Balfour in the afternoon and had an interesting talk with him about British and French finances. He did not know anything about what was going on, and I thought it wise to inform him so he might advise Lloyd George in the direction I think he should go. Balfour agreed with my conclusion as to what attitude the British government should take. Bonner Law, Norman Davis tells me, made an open proposal to him today that we should agree to ask $50 billion indemnity from Germany, but to take it in marks, and to even let the Germans know privately that we did not expect her to pay the full amount, and after five years or some such period, she would not be expected to pay anything further. Norman Davis very rightly replied that he did not think the United States would wish to be party to such a transaction. The purpose, of course, is to fool the British public. It is certainly convenient that after making it clear what the Prime Minister's intentions were, House was able to produce suggestions of his own which Balfour was ready to accept. This supports the consistent picture House painted of himself as a man who identified the problem and promptly fixed it, only to reluctantly be showered with all manner of praise. House just could not help being so darned successful, it would seem, and he wrote on what happened next. Norman Davis and I feel, and I so expressed myself to Balfour, that the wise thing to do would be to tell the British public that Germany is bankrupt, and that the British financial experts and statesmen were mistaken in believing she could pay the enormous sums they and their public at one time had in mind. That if it were possible to get such an amount out of Germany, it would only be possible in the event that the British would consent to lend the Germans an enormous sum in order to revive their commerce. If they did this, Germany would then become not only a competitor for British trade throughout the world, but would probably come near monopolising it. It would be better, therefore, to accept Germany as a bankrupt and take what she could actually pay, or what was in sight, rather than create another British debt in order to place Germany in a condition to be a commercial rival. Balfour agreed with this conclusion, and I believe will pass it on to both Lloyd George and Bonner Law. With this triumph, House had little time to relax. He was whisked away to a meeting discussing the League of Nations. House outlined a major problem of the moment, that the President refused to compromise on his vision of the League for the sake of making it more acceptable to Congress, even if this meant it wouldn't pass in Congress. House recorded how he buoyed Robert Cecil's failing confidence by insisting that Wilson would soon see sense, and indeed, though it'd be nice not to have to say it, House was actually right in this case. Wilson would soon relinquish this stubborn hold on the old version of the League and would work to make it more acceptable to men in Washington who had the power to destroy it altogether. House wrote that, We were together for an hour and a half going over the League of Nations and discussing how it could be amended, if at all. I am in favour of some amendments and some clarifications. By doing this it will make the Covenant a better instrument and will meet many of the objections of our Senate. The President, with his usual stubbornness in such matters, desires to leave it as it is, saying that any change will be held in the United States as yielding to the Senate, and he believes it will lessen rather than increase the chances of ratification. Of course, I totally disagreed with him, and so did Lord Robert, but rather more diplomatically than I. When we left, it was agreed that we should dine with the President Tuesday evening at 7 and spend the evening together and determine what changes, if any, should be made. I drove Lord Robert to the Majestic and he seemed depressed. I tried to cheer him by assuring him that the necessary changes would probably be made and that he must not take the President's attitude too seriously. 
The 16th of March entry concluded with a vivid picture of House's involvement in the British political scene. House's friend, Lord Northcliffe, we learned in episode 46, was constantly in touch with him regarding the British political situation. A determined and bitter foe of Lloyd George's, Northcliffe was driven in his quest to harness the considerable power of his press to shape the narrative, a strategy which House both encouraged and understood, writing in his diary that Steed came in as usual to get inspiration for editorials for the Northcliffe Press. I told him of our attitude on the question of the League of Nations and assured him that there would be no delay because of it and that it was intended to make a component part of the permanent peace. I also told him of Lloyd George's intended departure Thursday and asked him to do what he could to stop it. His editorials will come out tomorrow, which will deal with this subject. With that, House's eventful day of the 16th of March was over, but his useful coverage of these few days was not at an end. On the 16th of March, House recorded another full day of observations and details about what had taken place, again placing himself front and centre of the action. House paid much attention to the lingering question of German reparations, which had enjoyed a resurgence in attention from the other Allied powers since Woodrow Wilson's return to Paris. Writing in his diary, House noted once more his own plans for reparations with the vanquished Germans, taking the time to allude also to the deep anxiety which his counterparts felt on the matter. William Wiseman came after lunch and said again that Lloyd George was worried about the question of reparations, both as to amount and as to how he was to satisfy the British public. I wrote out a plan which I told Wiseman to submit to him, and which I thought might cover the case. The feature of my suggestion was that the sum of $30 billion could be set as a maximum figure, and that a commission should meet once a year to determine how much Germany could pay the following year, and also to determine whether the amount of $30 billion was excessive for reparations demands. In this way, the French and the English could let the Germans evade an impossible payment. Apparently, undaunted by the difficulty of that task, House turned his attentions away from reparations and towards the other very tricky question, that of the Rhineland. We haven't talked much about the Rhineland in our narrative so far, but that didn't mean that the issue hadn't been important during these spring months. The tension between the Allies over the Rhineland represented a familiar tale of French concern and Allied indignation. By late February, a scheme had been drawn up by Clemenceau which would ensure Germany's borders stopped at the Rhine, but no indication on how the Rhineland would be governed was provided for in that memo. When it was released on the 25th of February, Clemenceau found the British and American leaders wholly opposed to it. We regarded it, Lloyd George said, as a definite and dishonourable betrayal of one of the fundamental principles for which the Allies had professed to fight, and which they blazoned forth to their own people in the hour of sacrifice. It was a scandal to separate Germans from German land and call it justice, and Woodrow Wilson agreed, letting House know, while his American tour was underway, that This agreement could not stand. The desires of the people were German in character. Taking this territory away from Germany would simply give a cause for hatred and a determination for a renewal of the war throughout Germany that would always be equal to the bitterness felt by France against Germany over the lost provinces of Alsace-Lorraine. It had been a reasonable point. House was instructed not to give way or really address the Rhineland issue until the president returned to Paris. But Clemenceau was undeterred. 
Andre Tardieu, France's VIP when it came to examining the country's borders and making difficult pronouncements, had organised a committee to be set up in secret a few days before Wilson's boat docked at Brest on the 13th of March. There, Tardieu made it plain just how determined France was to detach the Rhineland from her adversary, and how she did not see the similarities in the dangers of detaching the Rhine in 1919, as Germany had detached Alsace-Lorraine in 1871. Tardieu had said, France would never be content unless it was secured against a repetition of 1914, and this security could only be given by drawing the frontier along the Rhine. France had the right to expect that if there was to be another war, it should not take place on French soil. This also seemed like a reasonable point, and it was also another reminder of how heavily the burden of war would fall on France if Germany tried again. But the British held firm in these secret committees. The French were simply aiming too high if they imagined that the Rhineland could be permanently separated from Germany, or that Allied armies would remain to guard the river crossings indefinitely. France should instead rely on British promises to come to her aid. Tardieu remarked prophetically that he did not believe the British would be able to get to the French in time, since they had only scraped into the war in 1914. Lloyd George added that the British people and their Dominion brethren would never accept such a naked land grab by France, and it would have the effect of turning public opinion in these countries against the French. An impasse had thus been reached, with the result that by the time Wilson returned on the 13th of March, the Rhineland issue remained unresolved. This, of course, did not stop House from trying to reach some kind of solution on the 17th of March, as he wrote in his diary about his efforts, saying... I also suggested a plan for the settlement of the left bank of the Rhine question, which I thought might meet the President's, Lloyd George's and Clemenceau's views. This suggestion was that a buffer state should be created for a period of five years, and then the League of Nations should decide whether the buffer state should exercise self-determination or should continue for another five-year period. This compromise did not, as we can see, promise the Rhineland back to Germany at any point, and it seemed to confirm that House planned to hand the Rhineland over to the French at some point. Perhaps this was a repetition of House's earlier behaviour in November during the Supreme War Council, when he capitulated on several issues, in return he believed, for what amounted to brownie points with Britain and France. House's stark plan also explains why Wilson may have discerned that he no longer saw completely eye-to-eye with his best friend. If House was willing to detach the Rhineland from Germany, what else was he willing to do? It certainly was not true that House gave everything away which Wilson had fought for, an accusation which Wilson supposedly levelled at his friend when talking privately with his wife. But Mrs. Wilson was no great fan of House, so it is entirely possible that Wilson never said this. It's also possible that Wilson felt increasingly paranoid and resentful towards House anyway, thanks to the unsuccessful American tour and the feelings of isolation which must have accompanied them. So we cannot know for sure, but it is evident that the President was much less close with his best friend than before he had left for the States, and this deterioration in their friendship was only set to continue in the subsequent weeks. Still writing on the 17th of March, House focused on an alarming development. Wilson was convinced that it would be more sensible to encompass all of the central powers in Germany's final peace treaty. This would secure the agreement and bound several countries together in respecting the final peace, but as House discerned, it would also necessitate first the actual solution of the considerable problems which the central powers faced into. House wrote, 
In talking with the President this morning, he insisted that peace should be made simultaneously with Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria and Turkey. His thought was that Germany should be tied up with the settlements made with these countries. Since both Austria-Hungary and Turkey are being dismembered, I insisted this would delay peace for an interminable time and I thought another way out could be found. A clause could be put in the treaty with Germany binding her to accept the treaties which were subsequently to be made with the other states. House opened his diary on the 18th of March with a brief rundown of all those figures that had seen him that morning before turning next to the task at hand, the formulation of some kind of collection of final German peace terms which could be presented to the Germans soon. House wrote vaguely that I shall not undertake to go into details further than the President, Clemenceau and George met in my apartment to discuss German peace terms. They got nowhere. They still skirt around trouble and I am becoming discouraged. He had better luck when attempting to apply the amendments to the League of Nations, though. Lord Robert Cecil, as ever, was on hand to help out, and this time House found that Wilson was less uncompromising and more willing to adapt elements of the League to please Congress, who had proposed the amendments in the first place, largely through the veins of Henry Cabot Lodge's reservations round Robin from a few weeks before. I found the President more reasonable than he was the other day as to meeting the wishes of the Senate, House said, before adding that, We found it nearly impossible to write what the Senate desires into the Covenant, and for reasons which are entirely sufficient. In explaining what these reasons were, House focused on the major reservation which Lodge himself had underlined, the question of the Monroe Doctrine, that American foreign policy principle which had supposedly protected Latin America from European interference and transformed the Americas into Washington's backyard. Since the Monroe Doctrine effectively granted the United States exclusive domination over Latin America, there were concerns that a league would interfere with this policy. Therefore, Lodge had felt it necessary to ensure that America preserved the Monroe Doctrine as some kind of exception to the league where the Monroe Doctrine would override any commitments which the US might have to the League, should the two things conflict. House anticipated great and grave consequences if these exceptionalisms were enshrined into the treaty, namely that other nations would be in petitioning for exceptionalisms of their own. He wrote to this effect in his diary that, We are perfectly willing to adopt these reservations if the balance of the world would accept them, and if they do not cause more difficulties than they cure. If a special reservation of the Monroe Doctrine is made, Japan may want a reservation regarding a sphere of influence in Asia, and the other nations will ask for similar concessions, and there is no telling where it would end. If a statement is made that it is not intended to interfere in domestic affairs, this would please our senators from the Pacific Slope, but it would displease all the senators of pro-Irish tendencies, for they would declare that it was done at the instance of the English in order to keep the Irish question forever out of the League of Nations. We are not trying to act in an arbitrary way, but are sincerely desirous of meeting the views of those senators who really have serious objections, but who do not understand our difficulties. No one can understand them without being here to formulate a covenant, as we have. The rumour had been put about that House managed to remove the League of Nations from the final peace treaty with Germany, but this was not the case. It would be more accurate to say that The League had never been officially confirmed as an integral part of what would become the Treaty of Versailles. This confirmation would be given on the 26th of March, 
and it immediately placed Wilson under great strain because it made it essential that he fix the league to Congress's satisfaction or the entire Treaty of Versailles would not pass. This, as we know, is what unfortunately happened. Congress refused to ratify the Treaty of Versailles largely because of the agreements which bounded to the League. By refusing to ratify the League, Congress refrained from giving their blessing also to the Treaty and they would sign a separate peace with the Germans several years later. By that time, the isolationist current within American thinking had blossomed and increased. American boys would not be fighting Europeans' wars, nor would her interests be constrained by a League of European Monarchs. House's diary is relatively sparse on details for the 18th and 19th of March, but he did make repeated references to the military terms of the peace which Germany would be handed. In previous episodes we've learned something of these terms, which included an army of 140,000 men, for now at least, a minimal navy, no true air force, the removal of all submarines, bare naval power and a compromise between British and French negotiators, which would reimagine the German army as one powered by volunteers and a small officer corps. The French wanted lots of unprofessional German soldiers, 200,000 recruits every year, but trained only minimally to justify the large Allied commitment to defending France and maintaining their soldiers there. The British did not want this at all, and they argued for the retention of a small but professional German force, and to be realistic about the notion that Germany would lack professionalism in a force that size. The anxieties of the French, that of being left alone against a professionally-led German army, and the anxieties of the British, that of maintaining the men in Europe indefinitely against a swollen German force, both clashed, but Clemenceau supported Lloyd George in the end, going against even the advice of Marshal Foch as he did so. By the time Wilson entered into the scene of this debate then, it appeared to be largely settled, but there remained issues to be discussed. One issue which did the rounds was that which suggested a preliminary peace be presented to Germany now, with only the military terms delineated, and that the Allies would work in the subsequent months of the other matters, like the border issues, reparations, and perhaps even the League. Wilson objected heartily to this approach, interpreting it as an attempt to hotshot the peace and avoid enshrining the League into it. Wilson actually refused to attend the Council of Ten meeting on the 15th of March, despite those in attendance really wanting him to be there after such a long absence. The excuse which the President gave for not attending was that he needed time to read and approve of the military terms for Germany. But the act could have been viewed as a form of protest against what Wilson perceived as efforts to undermine the enshrining of the League into the preliminary treaty. It was vital, Wilson believed, that the Germans be confronted not only with plans to massively reduce their military capacity, but also with plans for reimagining how the world would work so that they would not feel their backs up against the wall. But if the League was an essential element of the preliminary peace terms, then what else was essential, and where could the line be drawn? Did an exact figure need to be set for reparations? Did Poland's border still need to be fixed? Did the Allied deliveries of food need to be regularised? All of these questions represented complications which would have to be worked through, and it is hardly any surprise that they caused additional delays. These delays contributed to a remarkable alteration in the Allied approach to making peace, as we know now. The idea of a preliminary peace was dropped, replaced with final terms, which would be dictated to the Germans once they arrived. At this stage, then, we can denote several trends and events taking place which greatly shaped how the final peace panned out. We can also discern where the real areas for disagreement resided among the Allied groups. The Anglo-Americans tended to oppose harsh French terms for Germany. 
France tended to support Italian claims as a strategic approach to combating Anglo-American dominance of the conference. But what happened when the British and Americans, or more specifically Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson, fell out over some issue? And what issues posed the most problems? When Wilson returned, he was made aware of two key theatres where Anglo-American hostility might increase. The first of these was the reparations issue, which we will look at in more detail in the next episode. But the second was tied into the military terms for Germany and related to Germany's navy. Unsurprisingly, considering the pattern which had been established as early as the first week of November, when Lloyd George found himself opposed to House's interpretation of freedom of the seas, the question of what to do about Germany's navy and how to plan for naval construction in the future rubbed the President and the Prime Minister the wrong way. But it wasn't just Germany's navy that was a sensitive issue. The very existence of the Kiel Canal, which enabled German ships to avoid the Danish sound altogether, and granted her greater access to the North Sea because of this, remained contentious for a very long time. The British wanted the canal to be internationalised, as would happen to their Suez Canal within a generation or so. Cheap plug for the Suez Crisis if you want to check that out. But the Americans did not want to set this precedent, having just established control themselves over the Panama Canal. There was some concern in Washington that if Germany was forbidden from operating her own Kiel Canal, then the Allies would be frequently required to ensure that she complied. This would require much energy and money, which Wilson was dubious about expending for the sake of denying the Germans their own canal access. The compromise for the Kiel Canal was formulated and stated that all countries at peace with Germany would have free passage, but as with most compromises, few were wholly pleased about this. Then there was the question of Heligoland, those two unimportant rocks in the North Sea. At least, they seemed unimportant when Germany had traded Zanzibar for them in 1890. In the last three decades though, the advent of air combat and the emergence of the naval race had changed how both sides viewed these two rocks. The Royal Navy wished to regain them, and if the Americans wouldn't allow it, then they proposed to simply blow them to pieces. The debate was even sufficient to draw comment from the nearly blind Sir Edward Grey. Sir Edward Grey, the former Foreign Secretary in 1914, and an avid birdwatcher, expressed his belief that the two islands be converted into a wildlife sanctuary. Clemenceau was of the opinion they should just be given to Australia, which would have been a very odd state of affairs. The compromise which was reached ensured that the islands remained German, but that all naval and harbour facilities were destroyed. Even then, the Anglo-Americans disagreed over Germany's coastal fortifications, as the British got their way in insisting that all of Germany's offensive coastal installations be destroyed, and the Germans promptly fell over themselves to demonstrate that their coastal installations were essentially defensive rather than offensive, and thus didn't fall into this should-be-destroyed category. Debates like these were always running into the background, and we don't need to delve heavily into them, but they do serve as a reminder Not only that the British and Americans failed to always see eye to eye, but also that every power had some kind of bee in its bonnet, which the others found uninteresting or unimportant or irritating. France had its German border plans, Italy had the Adriatic or the Tyrol or Fiume, Britain had the naval clauses, and the United States, according to its president at least, had the League. Within these bones of contention there existed certain overlapping or incompatible designs that were guaranteed to cause dissension. 
For example, what kind of shipbuilding policy should the British and Americans pursue after the war? They each wanted to defend their interests, but wasn't there a danger that they might kickstart a new naval race in the process? Wilson argued in the negative, insisting that the League would guard against such dangers and pointing to Anglo-American friendship. But Lloyd George was never confident enough in the League to abandon the Royal Navy's supremacy. Much like Clemenceau refused to abandon the tried and tested formula of strong alliances backed by strong militaries. Clemenceau seems to have gotten more flack for this than Lloyd George, but the justification in both camps were the same. They did not trust the League enough to place all their eggs in its ambitious new basket. Thus, when Germany no longer had use of her battleships, the issue of what to do with them was immensely sensitive. Should they be shared among the Allies? The British thought so, and no Navy Admiral worth his salt would have argued that the British should just absorb all of these ships. They simply could not afford to pay for their upkeep. Some wanted them unceremoniously sunk in the Atlantic. Others imagined that handing them over to a neutral power, or placing them in the command of the League of Nations, would best ensure peace. But nobody trusted anyone enough to make that leap of faith. An atmosphere of distrust was understandable, considering what had been endured. But there was also enough evidence for all to conclude that the situation was changing. It was impossible in 1919 to imagine Britain retaining its naval supremacy forever in the context of American armaments and invigoration following the war. Congress had actually approved the sequel to America's shipbuilding program in late 1918. Wilson's insistence that this was done to empower the League rather than empower America fell mostly on deaf ears, especially when his critics openly lambasted him for threatening Britain's naval supremacy. Meetings between the British and American naval secretaries went on in secret throughout spring 1919, and these meetings were some of the stormiest which these allies ever attended together, as the uncompromising British goal to retain or increase their naval dominance was confronted by an up-and-coming naval power determined not to lose out in the United States. In the end, a truce was declared in April, which facilitated a slowdown in the implementation of the American shipbuilding program in return for British pledges to support the League. What Wilson had been rather quiet about was that among his critics, Lodge and the late Roosevelt in particular, there had been so much opposition to the notion of challenging the Royal Navy in any sphere that Congress was proving difficult at this stage to support his plans for an expanded navy. In fact, it was proving difficult to make Congress support anything the President did at all. But Wilson did not publicise this development any more than he had to. Interestingly, what the Anglo-American naval talks did not address was exactly what should be done about the German fleet resident at Scapa Flow. An uneasy compromise had been reached, and it was tacitly accepted that addressing the sticky situation of the pre-existing German navy would jeopardise it. That may well have been true, but if anything was bound to jeopardise Anglo-American relations, then the next item on the agenda, that of reparations, had the potential to sink them altogether. The gathering of the four Allied leaders on the 20th of March 1919 represented a significant development in the course of the Paris Peace Conference. Up to that point, the meetings had been attended by several other statesmen, not to mention legions of secondary advisers, experts, technicians, and the usual printing or typing staffs. The Council of Ten, as House lamented, did occasionally arrive at resolutions, but they were also populated with people who just liked the sound of their own voice. Thus, there was little to stop men from droning on incessantly, distracting from the urgent matters at hand and absorbing the patience of those involved. 
A solution was to provide a more regimented structure, or even a more revolutionary idea, simply exclude everyone except the four Allied leaders. While these men met together, their conversations would be recorded by Sir Maurice Hankey. Eventually, when they got that system sorted out, Sir Maurice Hankey was the General Secretary of the British Civil Service. He was the designated stenographer of the Conference, or at least of the Council of Four, and the absolute hero of history enthusiasts everywhere who wanted to seek out for themselves what was said and decided upon in these meetings by assessing the minutes which Hankey painstakingly recorded. But what were the additional benefits of these four men meeting together in person? Well, on a practical level, the absence of any other foreign persons and Clemenceau's fluency in English meant that the three Allied leaders talked in English for the virtual entirety of these Council of Four meetings, and Vittorio Orlando, the poor guy, was only able to dip in from time to time as best as he could because English wasn't his strong suit. There was also much to be said for cutting down the speaking time of other individuals and having to deal only with four men in the room. It meant that decisions could be arrived at more quickly and that hurt pride or bloated egos were easier to traverse. It meant that conversations were more direct but also more casual because a less formal style was possible among these four ally leaders who supposedly felt less of a need to throw their weight around when among equals. Theoretically, this meant that the Allies would get a lot more done, but it did not mean either that the Council of Ten would refrain from sitting for the rest of the conference, or even that these four men would refrain from attending that Council of Ten. As the records of the minutes demonstrate, it wasn't until late April that the Council of Four truly usurped the Council of Ten in terms of utility. From that point, one notes that the Council of Four met sometimes as often as three or four times a day, whereas the Council of Ten met only five times after the middle of April. Interestingly, the minutes also record that the Council of Foreign Ministers, a new body altogether, emerges on the 27th of March, likely a response to the reduced opportunities for those statesmen to meet as often as they had done under the banner of the Council of Ten. Thus, their responsibilities, much like the meetings, were divided as foreign ministers and premiers no longer sat together, but separately, and hopefully arrived at decisions with greater speed and precision. We will see how this new system developed and how it worked over the preceding months, as our narrative draws on the minutes of these meetings, and these invaluable primary sources essentially power this project. So again, a huge thanks to Sir Maurice Hankey for making it all possible for us. Back to the issue at hand though, and when the four Allied leaders met on the afternoon of the 20th of March 1919, there was much at stake, and much which each Allied leader had to learn about his counterpart. Over the months that followed, these men would become closer and more comfortable, with the exception of Vittorio Orlando, which was probably deliberate. Productive and important as the Council of Four were to become, the first meeting of that body didn't bode well for the future. Since he hadn't been present, House could only ask Clemenceau how he had gotten on that evening when he saw him. Splendidly, we disagreed about everything, was how the French Premier responded. House noted that the meeting had taken all afternoon, from half three to half six, and that they had agreed to send a commission to Syria to see which power might be favoured by the population there to become its mandate. It's far too revolutionary, of course, to actually just let the Syrians rule themselves. House was impressed with this act, and saw in this idea a foil to Anglo-French tensions in Syria. Thanks to our access to the minutes of the Council of Four for that day, we can actually see for ourselves precisely how intractable the British and French positions were. It was actually only when Wilson stepped in near the end of the meeting that actual progress was made. 
arguing that the exit of Russia made the Sykes-Picot Agreement void, and reasoning that the people who lived there should have some say in who ruled over them, Wilson demonstrated his importance to the Council of Four dynamic here. With the President's intervention, further agreements helped to reduce the tensions between the British and French, to the point that the room was a great deal less stuffy and anxious by the time the meeting was over. We may wonder what House would have written in his diary if he had been able to see his friend and President in action, but Wilson's behaviour speaks for itself. He was the only one in the room capable of diffusing yet another feud among the Allies. One could only hope that in the future, another figure would emerge to fulfil this role of peacemaker and intermediary should Wilson find himself in conflict with his allies. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 